From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Two new court cases are trying to radically overhaul the way our government and big corporations are handling climate change. Today, lawyer Kieran Pender on the story of climate litigation in Australia and what's at stake. Kieran, can you tell me a bit about some of the legal cases that you've been reporting on for the Saturday paper? Who are the people suing over climate change? Sure. Well, there have been two cases just recently that have hit the headlines. One, uh, Kata O'Donnell, who's a 23-year-old law student at La Trobe University. I can't even remember a time when climate change wasn't a concern to me. She was getting a guest lecture from a climate lawyer a year or so ago and was struck by inspiration to to act in this space. And so she's suing uh, the federal government with the help of that climate lawyer, a guy called David Barnden. Um, But I've just been really interested in the financial risks of climate change since I heard my lawyer come to university and give a lecture about it. Cutter is arguing that the government in issuing sovereign bonds failed to disclose material financial risk to those bonds and that material risk being climate change and the impact that the climate crisis might have on the Australian government and the Australian economy. Most people are invested in government bonds through their superannuation account So investors need to be aware that climate change is going to have a severe impact on our economy and therefore the value of government bonds. So if that succeeds, it'll be really seismic. And then David's also acting for another young person, a 25-year-old called Mark McVeigh, who's suing his super fund, Rest Super. Mark was uh, searching online for what his super fund was doing to address climate change and take climate risk into account in in those investments they make on his behalf. And he found nothing. So he wrote them an email saying, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, they didn't respond adequately. And so now he's suing them. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's one thing, I guess, to be upset at the way in which governments and and organisations are dealing with the climate crisis. But Suing is another thing altogether. So what has taken them to this point? I think they they feel that both the government and corporations aren't doing enough. So for Kata, she she said to me, you know, she's so upset and angry that it takes this, it takes young people like her and Mark to bring the government and big corporations to account, um, but ultimately not enough is being done on on the climate crisis and, and therefore they've resorted to the courts to take action. The current way that the government is dealing with climate change leads to despair for me a lot of the time. I I see almost denial and inaction and it's it's really disheartening to have our, our leaders not take this risk seriously. Let's take a, a step back then. What is the precedent for this, for, for taking legal action on environmental issues like climate change? Australia has quite a rich history of of environmental litigation. Really in the 70s and 80s, people began to contest planning decisions, ministerial decisions uh, around development and projects on, on environmental grounds. Uh, so it's not really that surprising that climate was the next step. And in uh, 1994, we saw the first court case uh, consider climate change in the approval of a, uh, a coal 
a power station and uh, the New South Wales Land Environment Court, they approved the project, but they said that the developer had to take a number of steps to mitigate the climate impact. So really, ever since then, climate has been on the agenda for Australian lawyers seeking to address the climate crisis. And there've been many cases of that nature. One of the people I spoke to for this article was Elaine Johnson, who's at the Environmental Defender's Office. And she's really been pioneering these cases. She led a case for the EDO recently, uh, it's called the Rocky Hill case, the Gloucester um, coal mining case, where the uh, New South Wales Land and Environment Court blocked a development on climate grounds. The Land and Environment Court knocked back the proposal for the Rocky Hill mine, declaring it would be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The judgment is, I think, the first big piece of climate change litigation that this country has seen. Uh, and that was uh, a real turning point for that sort of litigation. The mine was rejected because the judge said it would cause substantial social and environmental harm and contribute to climate change. Kieran, you're saying that we've seen court action that's attempted to block coal-fired stations on planning grounds and then also action that has, has blocked mines on climate grounds. But has this actually worked in terms of, I guess, the ultimate goal of reducing emissions? We've had some victories in the court. The Rocky Hill case last year was one notable example. But I think impetus for this more creative approach to climate lawyering has come about uh, on the basis that we haven't yet done enough and those cases aren't achieving a sufficient traction in addressing the climate crisis. Australia is one of the largest uh, countries in terms of extracting fossil fuels. I think we're fifth or sixth uh, in terms of the, the amount of fossil fuel that we dig up from the ground and then export around the world. So, you know, there have been some successes, there have been failures, but I think governments are getting better at bypassing those decisions when they don't like them and corporations are becoming more aggressive in the courtroom. But we need to have more impact and we need to have more impact now and so the time was right for more decisive action in our courts. Lawyers all around Australia and really all around the world are beginning to think, well, what other legal tools do we have in our arsenal? And they're really pushing the law and, and exploring different avenues that could be used to achieve climate action. You know, the McVeigh and the O'Donnell cases by Mark and Catter, they don't have precedent. Um, they're new, but they build on existing law to try and push climate action, to say that, you know, the law needs to develop in light of the climate crisis. We'll be back in a moment. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. 
Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Kieran, we're talking about two new legal cases here in Australia that are attempting to hold the government and, and companies to account for the risks associated with climate change. What is influencing lawyers to, to launch these kinds of cases? There's been a lot of litigation all around the world, uh, in New Zealand, in the UK, in the US, probably the pivotal case globally and, and what's really seen as something for Australian climate lawyers to aim for is, is a case in the Netherlands called the uh, Urgenda case where a, a non-profit foundation sued the Dutch government on negligence grounds. So just as if you're in a car accident, you might sue the other driver for, for personal injury on negligence grounds. They took that concept and applied it at a macro level. Dutch climate organization Urgenda filed the original case some six years ago on behalf of nearly 900 plaintiffs. People are burning, drowning, you name it. We need to realize it's time for action. This is no game. We have to act now. I think they probably didn't expect to win. It was really speculative, really creative. And yet they won and they won and it went up to the Dutch Supreme Court and they won again. It's onrechtmatig tegenover Urgenda. They're currently contemplating what coal-fired power stations they're going to close. Climate activists have been celebrating the verdict, which forces the government to reduce emissions to 25% of 1990 levels by the end of next year. The agenda case was led by a Dutch lawyer called Roger Cox, and he gave a speech during that case where he said that he thought that other avenues had failed and courts were our only hope in addressing the climate crisis. The law and our courts are the only remaining institutional tools left in our democracy to free ourselves from the dangers that our governments pose to us. And those words and and his efforts really inspired a number of the lawyers in Australia that I spoke to who were hoping to bring similar or related actions to achieve the same sort of impact that he'd had here in Australia. Now, it may take a global pack of lawyers and a lot of support for legal action to make it happen, but there's no doubt in my mind that this can be done. Could a case like that be run here in Australia? Dutch negligence law is slightly different to Australian law, but not significantly so. And and certainly I spoke to a number of people, one in particular, Tim Baxter at the Climate Council is recognised as an expert on this question. And he was of the view that an Urgenda-style negligence case in Australia has some prospects of success. Climate lawyers are in some ways literally rolling the dice. But if you're rolling the dice a dozen times in a row or dozens of times in a row, you're going to get involved from sixes. And that's kind of where climate law is, I think, at the moment. Again, with all of these cases, there's so many unknowns. You know, you need the right judge, the right plaintiff, the right facts, the right expert evidence, and and a lot of luck. Um, But there was a view that whether in this style or in another style, eventually the stars would align and we'd have uh, climate success in our courts. Inevitably, while each case might only have a small chance of success, some will win. I think the most significant roadblock to successful climate litigation is money. 
Uh, in Australia, lawyering is expensive. Now, a lot of the lawyers and barristers involved in these cases do so pro bono or they work for non-profits and they do that, you know, and that's their role. Um, but uh, access to courts is expensive, you know, filing fees, documents, etc. that all adds up. But, but most significantly is the threat of an adverse cost order. So if, if you lose in court, you can be made to pay the other side's legal fees. And if you're fighting the government or a big corporation, you can be pretty certain that they're going to be spending the most money on the best lawyers money can buy. And if you lose, that, that those bills are going to be sent in your direction. So that is a huge disincentive um, to climate litigation and to public interest litigation more generally. Kieran, just say a, a Mark or Catter's case was to succeed what would the impact of that be? The consequences of, of victory for Catter and or for Mark will be seismic. Uh, people said to me when I interviewed them for this article that uh, people were watching this all around the world, companies, experts, lawyers, and that could have a really significant uh, ramifications for the way uh, corporates and governments approach climate change. This case is the first of its kind in the world, so we could expect to see other similar cases pop up around the globe and it could also mean that governments around the world really have to start to think about how they're going to address these risks. And, you know, those are two cases and and, and they're both fairly narrowly focused on the financial element. But more broadly, I think there's strong prospects that these different ranges of cases that are going to be brought in the future will have a positive impact on Australia taking climate action. It's not a panacea. None of this will happen overnight and courts are not uh, going to fix climate change. But courts can play a significant role uh, in the journey to decisive climate action. And I spoke to a number of climate litigators for this article I wrote, and one of them said to me, you know, the great thing about this is is we just, if we give 50 of them a try, surely one has to work. And, and we only need a few to work and to have a really seismic impact. And we actually achieve some climate action in the absence of, you know, strong government uh, intervention right now. Kieran, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. Kieran Pender is an Australian writer and lawyer. He wrote about climate litigation for the Saturday paper. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Also in the news, Victoria recorded another 19 coronavirus deaths yesterday as the government announced it was rolling out at-home testing for vulnerable people who could not easily leave their homes. The government has also launched a new advertising campaign featuring people who've recovered from coronavirus, discussing the health impacts they experienced. And in New South Wales, health authorities have confirmed a cluster of coronavirus cases at a school in Sydney's northwest has grown to nine. The school in Cherry Brook has been closed until August 24, while cleaning and contact tracing is underway. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.